Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8th, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Hey, this is DeRay. And what I'm about to say to the people on this episode, it's me, Sam Kai, and DR, as usual, talking about the news that was underreported for the past week. News that you should know, news about equity, race, and justice that just didn't make the headlines. And then I sit down with Jonathan McCrory, the executive artistic director of the National Black Theater in Harlem, to discuss the work that they're doing to elevate black creators, the history of such an incredible organization, and so much more. Here we go. My advice for this week is to go to coffee, go to lunch have the FaceTime like there's so many people that I've met in passing where like I keep seeing them I saw them at a thing saw them at a party saw them at an event and like we just didn't have time to talk in the moment and we're like oh we'll get together and we never really get together and in the past month I've been much more thoughtful about getting together about saying hey let's go do coffee let's go do lunch let's do those things you should do those things with the people in your life for some people it's like hey can we just FaceTime let's just hop on the phone like there's so many people that I've seen in passing and the pandemic made me appreciate friendships and relationships so much more especially because lord we were all stuck so let's go family friends welcome to another episode of pod save the people i'm diara ballinger you can find me on twitter and instagram at diara ballinger and i'm samson yangwe at samsway on twitter i'm kaya henderson at henderson kaya on twitter this is deray at diary on twitter all right we are together we're here we're ready we're excited I'm going to let my colleague and friends talk about the Olympics. I haven't really been watching. When I saw Simone Biles was coming back, I did watch Sis on the balance beam. Other than that, I really don't know what's going on. I don't know. if I think the Olymp- it's like over now, isn't it? That's probably a good place to start. So can y'all tell us what, what happened? What happened? The United States won more medals than any other country with 113 as the total count. But 39 gold, 41 silver, 33 bronze. Wow. The number two country was China, number three, Japan, four, Great Britain. I think we won, (laughs) if if there is such a thing. Wow. The highlights that I have were Allison Felix winning her 11th medal, being the most decorated person ever in track and field. Nailed it. Like, how incredible. The person who won shot put, like, that person was great. So I'm a soccer watcher. So in the Olympics, for some reason, I don't I don't know why this is. Soccer in the Olympics is different than soccer outside of the Olympics. Like, all the players are younger. Oh, You're really? only supposed to have, I think, three players who are over the age of 24, which means that, like, for most of the international teams, like the really good ones, a lot of their best players are, like, not allowed to play. So it's a completely different and like new, younger squad. And the finals just happened. I'm not going to give away the winner, uh, but it was Brazil, Spain. Uh, but it was cool to see. Like, I have no idea why the rules are different, like where they came up with this formula, but it, it's like a fascinating world of soccer that is like different than anywhere else. So it's cool to watch. I recommend people to watch uh, definitely the final. You should definitely watch I think Mu. She is. Oh, yeah. Uh, an American, she won the women's 800 meters, and you just gotta watch her run. The Americans won the relay too, and she is 19 from Trenton, New Jersey. Talk about a runner. Um, I watched artistic swimming, which was really interesting. I think it's probably what used to be synchronized swimming. And these ladies did this whole robotics routine in the pool that was absolutely amazing. I mean, there was a lot. I'm not a huge Olympics fan, but there was a lot. There was a little something for everybody. And Sam, to your question, Olympic soccer has an age limit to ensure that the FIFA World Cup retains its number one position in world soccer and doesn't have to compete for attention (laughs) with Olympic soccer. I knew it. I knew it. I was thinking like, you know, this would be the only other event that would be on par with the World Cup, but they won't allow that to happen. And they also shut down... There was that attempt at forming like a new league that would compete with the Champions League and like Mm. they shut that down. So like soccer is like interesting. The politics of soccer is a whole thing. 
Okay, my news this week is from the Washington Post Magazine, and it is about a small community of Browns Grove, Virginia, which is a historically black community in Hanover County, Virginia, about 17 miles north of Richmond. And this small African-American community is fighting against um, what I call the Disneyland of supermarkets, Wegmans. <laughs> and... <laughs> It is. If you've never been to a Wegmans, let me tell you, um, it's an adventure. But uh, Wegmans wants to build a 1.1 million square foot, $175 million distribution center in the community of Brown Grove. And of course, Wegmans and the state of Virginia say that it will add jobs and tax revenue. But in fact, the community is fighting this because um, they actually feel like the environmental impact is huge, that it will destroy their community, it will bring noise pollution, air pollution, truck traffic, and that it will sit on the unmarked graves of some of Browns Grove's founders, and it will disturb the environmental wetlands that provide water, well water, to this community. And the community, this little community was founded in 1870 by an emancipated black woman named Caroline Dobson Morris. And I did another piece about a black community in Maryland uh, a few weeks ago. And I'm really, I've gotten very interested in these small black communities that were founded by free black people. Anyway, this lady and all of her descendants have lived in Brown Grove and descendants are still there. And they have really done a number on this small community. They brought I-95 in some decades ago and cut Browns Grove completely in half. Uh, when I-95 came in, they built a truck stop and now there's gray ash and dirt from air pollution from all of the trucks that rests on people's yards and and whatnot. They have airplanes all over the place. They haven't improved roads in Browns Grove. And so like these trucks and stuff are running through the community and continuing to damage roads and flood things out. And so these people are like enough, right? And so they are fighting about it. The community is angry because they feel like they've been neglected by the state and county officials. There are no sidewalks in Browns Grove. The only playground in Browns Grove is provided by the church, the local church. And most of the residents draw their water from the well system because the county hasn't added them to the water distribution system. And so these little folks are doing their best to stay alive in this big wide world. And Wegmans, which is actually a private family owned company, has said, you know, look, we're going to build this distribution center. In fact, um, it's the single biggest investment that the company has ever made. And the community is saying you haven't done enough to consult with us directly. And, you know, Wegmans is not offering any specific contributions to Browns Grove. They're not guaranteeing any jobs. They're not going to put sidewalks in. They're not going to do anything. And you've seen these kinds of deals before where communities get a whole bunch of improvements when they agree to have big development come in. And these people are saying, look, we've had big development come into our community. It's only been bad. Nothing has benefited us. And here we go again. And what's super interesting about it is the rules to declare this site available for this use have not been followed. And so there are now a whole bunch of legal challenges. It's illegal to disturb a cemetery. And the people are saying they haven't found a cemetery. And of course, the people are like, well, you wouldn't find a cemetery. These are unmarked graves of a poor black community that nobody ever you know, wanted to document from the state perspective. And Wegman's take is, look, uh, literally, this is a quote from the article. From our perspective, we found land that was owned properly and said, this is in the perfect location and we're going to be good neighbors and it's all going to work out. And that is common, frankly, when big development wants to assert itself in various places. And um, thankfully, the NAACP has joined. They've mounted some lawsuits. And there was a recent breakthrough in January of 2020 when the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit 
ruled that Union Hill, a historically black community about 70 miles west of Brown Grove, had not been properly consulted on a proposed Atlantic Coast pipeline. And in its decision, the court said that environmental justice is not merely a box to be checked. So I bring this to the pod because um, the fight continues. For every big fight that is happening, there are little fights that are happening for people to preserve history and culture. The latest win for the community is that they have gotten some recognition as a National Historic District, which if they are able to finalize that process, it will stop actually this process. Um, but, you know, it's a David and Goliath story that has a lot to do with our history and our culture and community engagement. And I think that there are ways for companies to deeply engage with community, and most of them do not. And this is just an example of that. So I'm going to keep my eye on the community of Brown Grove versus what was one of my favorite supermarkets, Wegmans. You know, the tone of this article, and particularly Wegmans, and even, you know, some folks in political office, even within the Democratic Party in this article, is just like way off. They are framing this as economic development and jobs and, you know, bringing resources into black communities. And like literally the community is like, we don't want this grocery store that is going to come in and potentially build this massive center on potentially unmarked graves. Like, like it's wild, you know, from Governor Northam who praised this, you know, development to Wegner's, like they are just completely oblivious or they don't care, right? I mean, it's wild to see this and also wild to hear about the way in which people are still living in 2021, like getting water from a well. Mm -hmm. Like folks do need investment. They do need infrastructure. What they don't need is a white-owned grocery chain coming in and bulldozing graves to build a place where they didn't even commit really to hiring any specified number of people from the community, even the jobs we don't even know about. So it's sad to see this. This obviously isn't the first time this is happening. You mentioned I-95 and like this is just generation after generation of the state encouraging this and private developers doing this. I hope that they win. I hope that they successfully prevent this from happening and that they get like actual investment and like money yeah. and like, you know, real stuff. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore 
There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. So my news is about the racial wealth gap. And in particular, it's about data that was just published in the Wall Street Journal from the St. Louis Federal Reserve. Now, they did this survey of consumer finances, figuring out how much you know, income, how many assets, how much debt, total wealth uh, that families had all across the country. And this is new data. This is data through 2019. So it doesn't include all of you know, last year and this year, which is a lot, but does include data through 2019. And the update is not a good one because what they find is that the racial wealth gap is expanding. And in particular, they zoom in and look at folks who are in their 30s, so like a lot of us, and they look at the racial wealth gap between black and white households in their 30s, folks in their 30s. Uh, And what they find is that that gap is growing, particularly among folks with college degrees, whereby compared to the previous generation, white households with college degrees are increasing in wealth by about 17% compared to three decades ago. Now they have $138,000 median net worth. For black households with college degrees, wealth has plummeted compared to the previous generation. In today's dollars, the previous generation, three decades ago, had about $50,000 in net worth in their 30s. Today, us folks in our 30s, $8,200 median net worth with college degrees. For folks without college degrees, it's even less, about $6,000. So the college degree matters for black folks, you know, it matters for us, but not really that much. It doesn't really do a whole lot to close that gap. Meanwhile, white folks without college degrees, white folks without college degrees are still almost at $50,000 net worth. Black folks with college degrees, $8,000. White folks without college degrees, almost $50,000 median net worth. So that's the racial wealth gap, right? And it is growing. And what is important about this data, one, it reminds us of just the massive scale of investment that's needed to correct for these inequities, which didn't start last year, the year before, even three decades ago, but are getting worse. But also it puts into stark relief some of the good news that I shared last week about a reduction in poverty rates because of the stimulus checks, the expansion unemployment assistance, child tax credits, and other benefits that were expanded during the pandemic. Those temporary infusions of income are like a drop in the bucket compared to this overall gap in wealth. And even those infusions are now proving to be relatively temporary as politicians try to back away from reauthorizing them. So that's sort of where we're at. I want to talk about this. We have to talk more about the racial wealth gap and just putting into context the scale of this issue, the scale of investment, targeted investment in black communities that is needed in order to close some of these gaps. Sometimes I feel like I'm living some of these stories Like this one, for example. (laughs) I think about my grandparents, right? My grandpa was an electrician. My grandma was a foreman in a factory called Honeywell. Honeywell's still around in Minnesota. They bought a beautiful home on the north side of Minneapolis. I doubt at this point, maybe me or one of my cousins could get in that neighborhood to purchase a home. My parents live in Hillcrest, Washington, D.C., in southeast that Usually I wouldn't even name Hillcrest, but y'all done found it. Y'all done found the gem. Okay. (laughs) Not only only have they found it, they They found a way to keep black people out these days. They sure did. And you know my mama found out about the white people's only Facebook. Mm -hmm. So y'all better watch out for Letitia because she's coming. (laughs) But my house went for sale recently in, um, because I sent it to you, Kaya, in Hillcrest. And it started at $750,000. My parents have been in that neighborhood for, what, probably 15 years? But that's like a starting home in Hillcrest now, which means, can I get in my parents' neighborhood? I don't think so. I have a good friend who grew up on the Gold Coast, 
who had to move to Maryland because she was trying to get a bigger house on 16th Street and she can't afford it. It's like $3 million. So when I think about all this education, all these degrees we all got, that has not seemed to be helpful in terms of wealth. Speaking in the context of this article, really, you know, like we're fine, we're privileged, da da da. This is the biggest betrayal, right? right. We tell kids, get right. a good education, go to college, and you'll be able to access the American dream. You'll be able to buy a house, you'll be able to get a good job, mm-hmm. you'll be able to do better than your parents. And none of that is true for the millennials. And so they have gone to the best colleges and invested the most that they possibly could in terms of taking on debt to finance their education and they can't afford houses and they don't have good jobs. And oh, by the way, black folks, the article said, our incomes are not rising as quickly as our other race colleagues, right? And so what are these children going to do who've taken out all of this? I I literally was thanking my lucky stars that I went to college 30 years ago and paid off my little student loans because I'd be up a creek right now. How are, what are, what are all of these young people with these degrees and not good jobs going to do? And right, there's no affordable housing anywhere. I live in Washington, DC, where it is a new high rise every 15 feet. And I don't know who's going to live in all of these places because these young people can't afford these $2,500 and $3,000 rents. And this is a city that attracts recent college graduates. And so when you look at what colleges and universities have done to raise their tuitions, somebody is really going to have to explain to me why it is going to cost $80,000 for one year of education anywhere. Like, I just don't understand it. And I sit on the board of trustees of a university. I'm watching these college costs continue to skyrocket. I'm watching kids continue to take loans out. They can't get jobs. They can't live anywhere. Help me me understand where we're going as a country. It is interesting, too. I think I didn't realize the impact of student debt as being just such a overwhelming factor and y'all can't see the chart on here but go click on the article and just look at the chart as well because black people with college degrees are also screwed black people without them are super screwed Mm -hmm. Uh, but the most fascinating part of it to me was that in 2012 64 percent of white families contributed an average of nearly $73,000 towards their college age children's education according to this study published by the St. Louis Fed just 34% of black families assisted at an average of $16,000. The white people who are going to school, yeah, they have some debt too, but their families on the whole are able to contribute a far greater like starting point to help them out. Black people, and this is certainly, I think most of our experience, black families, if they have to give, they'll, they can give, the families that can give can give something, but even the most that they give is just not, is nowhere comparable. And this is a reminder, this, all of this conversation is a reminder to me that like one rich black person, two black billionaires, three black billionaires does not end the racial wealth gap. That like structurally it is broken and it actually has to be fixed at a structural level. And one of the things that the article does mention that's helpful for a lot of people and that we know is true is that this gap has persisted since ding, 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 the end of slavery. That like what happens when you steal people, steal their labor, (laughs) don't compensate people. The gap comes from somewhere. It is not because black people are lazy because like people don't work hard, like the gap was designed. And the current tax code reinforces it by making sure that we pay a whole lot of taxes and millionaires and billionaires don't. We had that article on the pod some months ago. And even with wealth taxes and increase in capital gains, the whole U.S. tax code is all wacky and is literally like structured so that rich people get richer and stay rich and poor people do not. So all of this, it's all structural. I think it's also just kind of back to one of your points too, just around like philosophy around what we're told. Because I think, you know, being an entrepreneur now, having been an entrepreneur now for four or five years and really understanding that I had to learn how to run a business. Like I didn't know anything about running a business, even with a law degree my earning potential was really exponential as an entrepreneur, as opposed to, you know, if I went to a law firm and was on a partner track, that would be a certain amount of money, still very good money. But I, when I think about though, the community that I belong to, Kaya, you included in terms of like folks who are starting their own thing and the power and autonomy in that 
the power in one being able to decide what your potential and value is, but then also in the power to hire other folks. Yeah. I wish that was a part of our community's philosophy as we, you know, raise and nurture our children. I think it's like, you can be a lawyer, you can be a doctor, you can be a teacher, you can be an engineer. And, and I'll speak for my family in particular, when it came to entrepreneurship, it was too risky. That was too risky to do. It was like being an artist. You know, and so I just I think we all we also as a community have some work to do when it comes to what our options are and what our potential is and what we tell our kids. And uh, the only thing I'll say is, uh, you know, this is a conversation we had with Professor Diane Stewart, who wrote that incredible book on black love and black women, the history of African-American marriage, is that what she talks about is the idea of wealth spread, that even when you have a lot of income. Uh, in black communities, you are often spreading that amongst so many people because of mass incarceration and da da da. That like the wealth that you could have is actually just minimized, right? Because the spread is actually so great, and that we have to account for that too. That like that's just another reminder that like a couple rich people does not change the game in the way that people think. I was talking to somebody who I know who I didn't realize that prison phone calls weren't legal where they were, and she was like, "Oh no, I've spent at least sixteen thousand dollars talking to my husband." It blew my mind. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Ashley's Memorial Day sale is going on now. Shop our biggest selection of hot buys, cool deals, or shop limited time savings on new summer spaces. Plus, get 72-month special financing on select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Whether you're redecorating indoors or rethinking your outdoor space, save big on this season's trending styles. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. My news today is about a new graphic novel that is written by a black woman, Dr. Rebecca Hall, also Esquire. She has a PhD and a JD. Let me just say Dr. Rebecca Hall. So she got her PhD, I think is now teaching at the University of California, Santa Cruz. She has been a researcher for some, quite some time, and her particular area of research really has been slavery. Both the voyage and then what has happened consequently once um, African bodies got to this land. So what I found so interesting about this article is that, well, one, this book, obviously, which is a graphic novel, but I'm not even going to get to how cool that is. Really, I want to talk about the substance of this book, which was all of the research that Rebecca Hall uncovered that basically found that black women were responsible for a number, significant number of revolts, both on the continent in the capture and trying to get enslaved people, and then also on the slave ships. Um, And so I just found this miraculous because there hasn't been little research done on this, but there's just an assumption about black women that because they're women and because they're inconsequential, even when there was evidence that black women were leading slave revolts and because of how they positioned them on the slave ships. So usually because they were women, they were like, oh, they won't do anything. And they also put them on kind of the top of the ship near the weapons because one, they didn't think they were a threat, but also for them to be closer to their abusers in terms of, of sexual abuse. But because of their positioning on these slave ships, they were able to take advantage and lead a number of revolts. I just found so many layers of this interesting because once Rebecca Hall got to the bottom of it, she really realized that because of the framing of history and even because of the myopic thinking around black women and who they are and what they're capable of doing, that all of these stories were lost or they were kind of miscategorized. So there are cases even where this one black woman killed her owner um, and it was just kind of categorized as a murder. But in fact, it was this event that precipitated this revolt. So I don't know, I just wanted to bring this to the pod because I thought this was so fascinating for so 
many reasons. One, because again, it's just like this constant unearthing of stories of just the truth about the power and the resilience of Black people. I'm super curious about what this book even looks like. And the illustrator of the book is Hugo Martinez. So this book came out in June. So I'm just, I'm a little late to the game here, but really excited to share this with y'all and just to kind of dig deeper into how these historians thought it was counterintuitive that these black women could lead revolts. And they said the more that they found, the more black women that were on the ship meant it was going down. The more likely. <laughs> so, so curious to hear what y'all have to think about this one. You know, you mentioned the, the study at, at the end there. And, you know, reading the study was a textbook example of researcher bias and, like, why it's important for researchers to actually reflect the experience of the subject that they are researching. Because you had this huge database that I didn't even know existed. I've been exploring this database now. It's a database of 27,000 slave ship voyages that took place over centuries, like all over the world. And as you said, Diara, they discovered there were revolts on at least one in 10 of the voyages. And that the more enslaved women who were on the ship, the more likely a revolt was to have occurred. But then it goes on to say that the researchers questioned their own findings about the role women played in the revolts, calling them counterintuitive and noting that women are rarely mentioned as leading violent resistance in historical documents written by who? They had so much data, data I didn't even know existed. They conducted this whole complicated analysis. They found the finding, they found the finding that the more enslaved women there were on the ship, the more likely there was the revolt to have occurred. Like that should have led them onto the journey that Rebecca Hall is, is doing, the actual work of finding the documentation that turns out is there, but was largely hidden, that actually does establish this pattern that was happening, that does establish these revolts took place. Like the data was there, it was all pointing in that direction, and the researchers just sort of walked away from it because they were so biased that they couldn't like even consider that as a possibility. So like that is like a lesson for research. You see this all the time in like criminal justice, how researchers interpret particular patterns in ways that just uphold existing oppressive structures and ideologies that the data doesn't even support. Um, and I think this is like a, a textbook example of why you know, Rebecca Hall is so important uh, to be doing this research. Like you, Kaya, I wasn't surprised at all. And DR, thanks for bringing this here. It's like, of course we're mad. Like who was raising the kids? Who was making the food? Who was seen as so docile to be allowed to be in all of the most intimate spaces? Unsu I mean, it was the black women. Like, that makes total sense to me. That if you were trying to get close to somebody, that's it. Because they weren't letting those men, the men, like, they weren't letting the men anywhere near a whole set of people. But the women, so it's great that we're actually telling this story. It's also a reminder that when we think about rebellion, it is always an entire community that rebels. No matter who, whatever story you hear in the end, if some story tells you that a couple people did it, they are lying. It's always a community. And the idea that women were not a part in leading the community of rebellion, that it wasn't, it was those queer people who were enslaved. I mean, it was all of these stories that like we never got because white people knew that if we were able to tell our own story, if we could read and write, they knew it would be game over at some point. Because the thing about white supremacy that I worry that we don't say enough in public is that it is just rooted in evil. And I think that like what we know today, what they probably did to our ancestors on a daily basis, if we had their account of it, there would be no rendering that was not just evil. The rape, the abuse, the terror, like... If we had more first-person accounts, evil, like people would be like, wow. And the fact that we don't is how people can sort of wash over some of this stuff. I think people might be a little bit more than wow. I think it'd be rowdy, rowdy up in here. Yes, I agree. But happy that this is being reclaimed and retaught. My news about forensics. And in 2016, under President Obama, the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology put out an incredible report that really did not get picked up in the news because reporters don't feel smart enough to, to write about forensics. Uh, but the report is called Forensic Science in Criminal Courts, Ensuring Scientific Validity of Feature Comparison Methods. And what's incredible is that the report does a number of things. It essentially says that, like, there's a set of things that are used in the criminal justice process as evidence that just are not science. So you might call it something. You might believe that it's something. You just can't call it science. 
So there are some parts about the firearms examinations where it says PCAS finds that firearms analysis currently falls short of the criteria for foundational validity. They also, it goes on to say that more importantly, the stated method is circular around firearms examiners determining that shell casings match a gun. It declares that an examiner may state that two tool marks have a quote common origin when their features are quote insufficient agreement. It then defines sufficient agreement as occurring when the examiner considers it a quote practical impossibility that the tool marks have different origins. I mean, this report is unbelievable in the sense that it just picks apart these pieces of forensic science that people, because they saw CSI, they just believe that it must be true. Loretta Lynch, when she was AG, they sort of distanced themselves from this report. They didn't disavow it, but they were like, yeah, thank you, but no thanks. Because again, if you take what the scientists say about the forensic space not being science, then there are a host of people's cases that you got to reexamine because some firearms examiner said this or some bite mark analysis that's not real said this or, or whatever. But then in the final days of the Trump administration, in mid-January, as Trump is about to get out of office, uh, they issue a press release on January 13, 2021, where they have a statement that essentially completely disavows this study. What they essentially say is that like it might not be science, but it's good enough. That's like the gist of the Trump administration's response to PCAST. Mind you, this is like leading scientists across the country were assembled to be on this committee to write this report. The Trump people in an unsigned statement come out and are like, hey, this isn't real. And there are not a lot of unsigned statements that come out with the DOJ that are this expansive. It's like a 26-page document. It's all this stuff. And the Biden administration has not rescinded the statement, essentially disavowing and attacking PCAST recommendations. I bring it for a couple of reasons. One is that more organizers should understand the forensic space because I think that it is ripe for organizing for change at the local level. The D.C. Crime Lab lost its accreditation. The Houston Crime Lab got taken over by the state of Texas because it was such a mess. I think there's some incredible groups working on this, and I'm personally invested in this now. But the second is that I'm actually surprised that the Biden team has not come in and just done away with some things really quickly. This is one of them, that the Biden team should just retract this press release from the Trump administration, should not stand by it. Just like we talked about earlier in the podcast, in another podcast, that the Trump administration told people who they had previously let out of jail that they might have to return. The Biden team has not yet overturned that. So I wanted to bring it because I'm fascinated by the forensic space. Uh, while that people could be put in prison or in jail based on things that are not science but appear to be science. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, I'm spending a lot of time organizing around Keith Davis, who is incarcerated in Maryland. He's going to be tried for murder for the fifth time. And the firearms examiner, in his case, they the lawyer says, did you take notes? He goes, no. Did you take pictures? No. Did you take measurements? He goes, no. She says, are you saying you eyeballed it? And he says, yes. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Sofas, recliners, love seats. Everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute. Who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Black creators have always turned to the National Black Theater in Harlem for support, using the space for development, production, financial scholarship, and residency opportunities. And today, I get to talk to Jonathan McCrory about his work helping to lead the charge as the Executive Artistic Director of the National Black Theater. Here we go. 
Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us here on Pod Save the People. Hey, so happy to be here. Thank you for giving us space. So, Jonathan, we met a long time ago, it feels like now, uh, because I was at the National Black Theater Harlem. A lot of people I know love it and love Sade, the CEO. And then I met you, and I was like, oh, my goodness. He runs this day-to-day. He's the best. Uh, and I wanted to learn more about your story. So can you tell us how you ended up at the National Black Theater and what is the National Black Theater? I've been at MBT close to 10 years now. Um, National Black Theater was founded by Dr. Barbara Antier, a woman born from East St. Louis who wanted to create a destination for her people to be liberated. Um, what does liberation look like? Um, not just freedom, but liberation. Now to create a space that allowed for us to have a Mecca, um, a home that allowed for our exhales. As Sade would say, your home is where your exhale can feel the best. And so what does it mean um, to create a physical built space, not a theoretical space, not a virtual space um, that is uh, owned, operated and run by black people um, that would allow for us to have a place in the Americas forged for our brilliance, forged for our liberation and forged for our innovation in the vehicle of the creative arts. So um, we are a half-century-old organization, um, now currently run by Sade Liscott, who is on so many levels my co-pilot in almost everything that we do. National Life Theater's home is on the corner of 125th Street and 5th Avenue. Um, Dr. Barbara Antier wanted to buy the intersection of what she thought was the most famous address and would be the most famous address in the world. You go anywhere in the world and you say 125th Street, people think of the Harlem Renaissance, Black culture, that whole algorithm. And then when you think of Fifth Avenue, you think of opulence, you think of Saks, you think of um, extravagance, you think of luxury. So what does it mean to have the intersection of the two? And that's what we're able to kind of animate and occupy um, to create that kind of oasis. Um, now, fast forward to today and present, um, we take all of that legacy, that history that Dr. Tier and the liberators forged and found 50-odd years ago. And Sade and myself, we get to create a innovative platform that utilizes that mechanism to create a healing art elixir that addresses some of the present day, present pulse issues that um, meet us and face black people on a daily basis. We also get opportunity to do something quite magical and beautiful of creating and starting to innovate on top of Dr. Tears theology of creating a space where black people can live, serve, and work, and venture into a capital redevelopment project with our board chair, Michael Lifkod. Together with our board and with Sade and with myself and the rest of the amazing staff at MBT, we get to go on a daily journey of innovating, expanding um, the vision by creating what will happen or what we will be premiering in the near future, a 21st century destination theater that takes our current site and turns it into a 20-story high-rise that will have a residential component to it, plus a state-of-the-art new theater that will be able to truly root um, and center that kind of prompt that I talked about a little bit before. How do you create a space for Black artists to live, a place literally for them to live in, a place for them to serve, creating a space for Black artists and Black people in general to serve their community and to work? And what does it mean to create mechanisms, pipelines, um, that allow for Black bodies to be paid to do creative work, but paid to do um, work that benefits the community at large. How do people get to you? Is there like a fellowship thing that the National Black Theater runs or do people write in? Do you only solicit? It is. It has always been compelling to me that, that the National Black Theater exists to create space for Black people, but I know so little about this work. If I'm a, like, if I'm a young playwright listening or if I'm a older playwright listening, or if I'm a, I don't know, an artist who wants to do work with you all, how does that even happen? The way in which we try to create mechanisms for people to interact with us are multiple different tiers. Um, one is our residency program. So we have a three-pronged residency program right now. Um, one is for playwrights. So it'll give a Black playwright a home for 18 months. Um, right now it's three Black playwrights a home for 18 months to be able to do um, and create a brand new work that we will present and produce out into the world in a workshop production or in a radio play. Um, another way um, for a Black artist to interact with us is through our director residency program, um, where we give a Black director a home, again, for 18 months, with the goal of really shifting the point of access for Black directors to be able to produce 
and emerging black directors to be able to be produced um, professionally in New York City. Um, and then lastly, is through our producer residency program, um, which gives a black producer a 10-month residency to really center themselves and get rooted um, in what does it mean to be a cultural producer. Uh, many black bodies do not see themselves as a space of being a producer because of the thing called finances and money. Uh, however, at NBT, we, I, we try to spin it. I'm saying that the black culture is a rich and vibrant culture that has shaped and built economic systems. And what does it mean to actually be able to center and root that as a part of your currency and allow that to be how you guide and help to build community? So there are multiple different ways. And outside of that, if we're doing a main stage production, it's usually through um, scripts that are solicited by MBT. Also, we have uh, different development arms. Uh, if someone wants to rent the space, uh, when we do have our space back on the line, um, there is a um, rental subsidy program that we have called the Entrepreneur Artist Program, um, which allows us to really do the placemaking work um, to allow for people to be able to use our facility for their own community events. So there are a few ways in which we are able to engage with artists, um, and we're hoping to deepen and expand that. All the residency programs, they fall under a series called the Soul Series Program. And they're all application-based, so uh, they are selected through a, a panel of peers, um, and then they go through a process with me once they become finalists. So I really try to step out of the way um, to really allow the community to tell me or help guide me and guide the institution overall um, in a broader sense of, like, where should we be going? Who are we not giving space to? Who should we be listening to? And from there, we try to create as many opportunities to allow all of the people that are uplifted as finalists and as semifinalists opportunities to be um, supported by MBT in various different ways. How has all of this changed given the pandemic? The pandemic allowed us to pause and really think about how are we deepening our investment, um, how are we um, expanding our investment also. What does that look like? It looks like in a couple of different ways. Um, one way in which it um, has been changed is that we've upped our commission fees. Our commissioning fee for our director residency program was $5,000 because of the pandemic and because we wanted to deepen that um, investment inside of that singular person. We upped it to $10,000 before the pandemic. We only had two playwright in residence um, because we wanted to be able to deepen and be able to give as many playwrights as possible an opportunity. We upped it to three playwright in residence before the pandemic um, became what it has ultimately become. You will remember we were saying in two weeks, in three weeks, we'll be back to business as normal. Uh, because of the durational impact of the pandemic, we decided to actually hold off on um, doing another round of applications for our playwright and our director residency program because we haven't been able to, uh, quote-unquote, graduate the last class of beautiful artists that we are supporting. And because we wanted to deepen and be able to make sure we take care and steward the folks that um, have entrusted their creative life force, their juju towards us. We have extended their residency, um, deepened their, our investment inside of their individual careers, and also trying to figure out in the span of COVID, what does it mean to create the presentation or the public offering for each of these artists so that they actually get the kind of exposure that the program has historically provided um, the artists that we have actually had. So the pandemic has really uh, shifted and deepened what it can do. For the institution at large, the pandemic has radically um, accelerated a lot of ideas that we were once thinking. Um, we had this notion and this idea on the heels of this capital redevelopment project of creating a digital home that would allow for our itinerant phase to be kind of looked at as a way in which to advance the digital aspect of MBT. So what does it mean to enhance our website? What does it mean to really look at our Instagram, our Twitter, our Facebook as an extension of a physical built space? And what does it mean to create the sense of what we had been really stewarding um, for 50-odd years? How, what does it mean to expand that and actually give that to the community in a large and, and meaningful and deeply intrinsic way. This actually activated two new programs that we have been really investing in. One is MBT Beyond Walls, which is literally um, the concept of going beyond MBT's physical walls and sharing our programming locally, nationally, and internationally through co-productions and co-presentations and co-development opportunities. So that is looking at physical built partnerships, and that has actualized itself in the partnership that we did with the New York Philharmonic, where we did um, Bandwagon and Marcus Garvey Park, 
to this new partnership that we're currently in with the public theater, where we're literally going to all five boroughs, sharing elements and reading elements of Adrian Marie Brown's emerging strategy in concert with um, the public theater's mobile works shows that they have curated. And then we also activated a digital aspect, which is called MBT at Home. And MBT at Home is an apparatus that literally looks at what does it mean to take our conversation series, our technology, and actually share it, our home to your home, literally on a one-on-one basis. When we were all turning on our Zooms, when we were all turning on um, our various different um, computers and listening to conversations, or even, you know, i.e. this podcast, we were in probably our home doing it. So what does it mean to take MBT and awaken MBT inside of your home? And what does it also mean for MBT to share our home values, our pedagogy with you as well? And it's really rooted in Dr. Tears saying that she would always say before anything um, that she would do, she would say, welcome to your home away from home. Um, And so we are hoping that as we are itinerant, we're still able to keep that essence alive and vital. I also know that there is a building it was in the New York Times that the National Life Theater is moving. Are you moving or is this like a, is this going to be an addition? It's going to be not just a theater space. It looks like there's going to be residential too. Is this like part of the 50 year plan always? Is this new? Tell me about that. So the capital redevelopment project, which um, had a significant announcement um, in the New York Times, um, really centered by Shade Lipcott's uh, quote and ethos around really amplifying and animating her mother's initial vision for the organization. It is going to be a new capital redevelopment project. It's a major capital redevelopment project on 125th Street and 5th Avenue. Um, the focus of the capital redevelopment project is to reignite and, and reanimate Dr. Tier's initial impetus for buying the property, which was to allow the land to subsidize the art. What does it mean to make the two actually um, be in concert with each other? So we have embarked with our developing partners, Ray um, and L&M, to reanimate and reimagine um, what our site can look like. Um, and what's currently happening right now is that we have gone through a design phase and the renderings that have now been released is the culminating apparatus of that. What's quite wacky and, and beautiful and kind of like crazy about the whole thing is that we did all of that designing during the pandemic. What's a marker of the kind of spiritual guiding forces of this project is that the redevelopment deal was signed on Dr. Tears' birthday, which is June 18th, and then it was co-signed by our developing partners on Juneteenth. It was kind of apropos that that would happen because everyone could understand um, what Juneteenth means and is, and also who Dr. Tears, who she is and what that means. And to have those two days coincide has centered our values inside this project, um, a project that is really centering Black liberation, creating space for Black artists and for community. What we are hoping to do with the new building um, and what we are really grounding inside the programming of the building is the element of artist housing. So how do we create space for artist housing to happen inside of this new tower, um, making sure that there are apartments that will allow for artists in our community to be able to, again, going back to that initial prompt that Dr. Tier phrase, how do you create a space for people to live inside of the community and not be gentrified out? Um, and then the next prompt is how do people, are people able to also be served? So there'll be two new spaces inside of this um, new building. Um, one will be a 99-seat studio theater, and the other one will be, if you've been to MBT before, our temple space. We're actually redoing that configuration um, inside of this new building. Um, and then there will also be the adjacent support spaces. We will have opportunities for people to learn how to build and construct in our shop. We'll also have opportunities for people to potentially um, record inside our recording studio, and then we'll also have rehearsal space. So we're trying to create an ecosystem that allows for creative imagination to truly happen, um, and that's the Capital Redevelopment Project. It's really, hopefully, will generate um, a healing center that is rooted inside of the ethos of shifting and augmenting the perception of what black and brown bodies can and will be able to do inside of America, inside of this community, inside of Harlem. Uh, when Shade and I first began this road, um, we were really searching to create. We looked at Ailey as a potential blueprint of what our opportunity was, knowing what Judith Jameson had been able to do um, with Alvin Ailey's vision and mission um, and how she's been able to animate that and build a North Star inside of the dance community for Black dance and for American dance in general. Um, and how can we do that with inside the context of this, knowing that 
Sade is taking up the mantle of her mother's vision um, and how we collectively can help to animate and illuminate that North Star with inside of theater and in particularly black theater um, inside of the global and national consciousness. I've read that there is a production called Hands Up. Can you talk about that? So Hands Up is a show that that is kind of near and dear to my heart. After the murder of Mike Brown, there was a call and response that was needed from our community creatively. And the person who took up that mantle, the organization that took up that mantle and said, I will do something with it, was Keith Joseph Atkins from the New Black Fest. Um, What he did um, is that he brought, uh, at that moment, six Black male-identified artists together, writers, to write testimonies of what it meant to be surveilled and also to be murdered by the cops. What is that trauma, that triage, that consistent barrage? And what does that do to the human psyche? So um, at that moment, the initial impetus of creating Hands Up, it was six testimonies by six Black male-identified bodies talking about what it meant to be um, accosted and to be surveilled and to have the violence of police brutality um, hit their system. Uh, down the road, um, knowing that the stories weren't complete enough, he added a woman-identified voice by the name of Nambi Kelly to the fold, trying to broaden and deepen uh, the context of telling the story. However, in that initial six, I w- had the fortune of um, mounting um, the first kind of full production of the show. Uh, that was roughly around 2016. It was a really healing production. Um, it was arresting it, all of the things that you might imagine. Um, emotions were high. Tensions were very high. Everyone was trying to just figure out there was loss. And there was a little bit of a need for a North Star. Um, and this production became an opportunity um, for us as a community to grieve communally, but also for us to have conversation communally and us to be able to hug and be able to understand that my pain is not in isolation. Uh, my grief is not in isolation. It is a communal grief, and we can communally also move forward together. In the midst of the civic unrest, in the midst of the COVID-19, there was this kind of pull at my system to say there was a need to revisit. There was this re-burgeoning um, concept of returning back to radio plays um, and generating audio um, landscapes creative opportunities uh, for artists to be able to still practice their work of creation, but doing it in a way in which that allowed for the ears to go on an imaginative journey versus the visuals or having to go to a live performance. Thinking about what would it mean to revisit this text, I was hoping that it would feel more so like a retrospective. It would feel more so like, oh, we've grown past a lot of these concepts. And unfortunately, um, revisiting that text, we're still just scratching the surface. Unfortunately, these texts still feel so resonant. And unfortunately, we also, thinking of Mike Brown as the beginning impetus for why this piece began, we wanted to do a little bit of research. Um, and doing that research, and thank you, DeRay, for pointing us into some locations that we could find names, we were able to compile close to 7,500 names of people male-identified, woman-identified, non-binary, and trans Black people who've been murdered by the cops. And it was very important for us to use that distinction um, because that was the impetus for the piece that was created. And it it has actually helped us to think about how this is a modern-day genocide um, and what ways do we need to be talking about this more often and in what ways do we need to think about reform and what ways do we need to think about how do we advance this notion of protecting life and protecting the sanctity of life? And how do we grow into that understanding? So what we ended up doing is that uh, we got a wonderful group of actors together to read and animate the text. We're currently right now in post-production and we're um, putting um, with a composer and sound designer, crafting out the landscape of the sonic landscape. I am the director of it. Um, So I am directing this work, again, kind of my desired retrospective piece. And it will be the North American radio play premiere of the work um, that will premiere in August for the full week from the 16th through the 23rd. So that is hands up. And what we also did is that we had a commissioned artist um, by the name of Jamie Todd um, take the images of the seven actors um, who are reading um, the text and take all the list of names um, that we're able to compile and create a piece that helps to memorialize um, and animate the fact that these seven um, are the representation of and helping to potentially voice some of the unfortunate people who are not able to be present with us um, and also helping to understand that they're part of channeling a communal response. 
Um, and that is not a singular one. Well, Jonathan, we consider you a friend of the pie. Can't wait to have you back. And everybody, go check out the National Black Theater in Harlem. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.